Welcome to Paddy Talks Golf, everyone, and this week's episode, which is brought to you thanks to the support of Seed Golf Balls over at www.seedgolf.com. Head over there and get yourself a trial pack or some Seed 15s, the distance ball, or maybe use the Seed 2s, the Pro Tour balls, which I use myself because you deserve great balls at a fair price. They also have some great accessories and some awesome product ranges coming in the pipeline. So maybe stay tuned to my profile on Instagram and Twitter at Paddy underscore golf, and you might get some sneak peeks. So, you're probably wondering who is on this week's episode. It is Mr. 57 himself, professional golfer, David Carey. Proud member of Team Ireland and actually recently coming off claiming top spot at the latest Team Ireland event held at the K-Club. This episode was recorded back in lockdown and David Carey is back on course and raring to go and hopefully shoot some more 57s. For the first couple of minutes, my microphone isn't the best, so I do apologise for that. But um, yeah, as Gabe Arden would have said, wrote it there, Roisin. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Joe Bradley told us the production line was finished in Kerry. Where's Joe Bradley? What did he get at? I am very good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. How's isolation treating you? It's it's very busy. Much busier than I thought it would be. From your Instagram, you're chasing speed. Like like a lot of speed. So why is that? Um can't have enough speed really, can you? It's just it just generally helps everything. The more you have, then you're never gonna be able to play and control your max speed on the golf course. So the more you have in the bank, then that'll up your playable speed. Okay, so what was your, we'll say, your gamer swing speed before you had, I suppose, more time allocated for a project like this? Well, there was a couple of things that have gone into it. I've been tweaking shafts and drivers and kind of maxing out stuff that way. But I was playing at, on a good day, I was playing at about 180, but I was probably... Probably just a little bit below that for kind of day in, day out. So when you say 180, you're talking about ball speed? Yes, correct. So is that more the figure you're trying to increase? And obviously that, that stems back to your, your initial swing speed. But aside from your own swing speed, what else can contribute to a higher ball speed? Well, I suppose strike is the big one. And then strike will also be affected then by are you presenting the right amount of loft? Uh things like that it's just generally being more efficient so that you're getting the most out of the swing speed you're putting in okay so, so what's your approach then to gaining speed because so as we had um fit for golf mike on mike carroll with peter o'keefe on and um, and i suppose they would attribute you know a strength and conditioning programs like deadlifts and rdls and uh, combined with like you said their accurate striking to kind of all come together but what, what's your approach to it for me, you can't beat, well, you do need to have some sort of monitor, so kind of a launch monitor or a swing speed monitor or something firstly set up, and then just just hitting golf balls, trying to push that speed up. It's I find it amazing how much speed I've done this. I've done this with my friends and different people, how much speed you can get out of someone just by kind of encouraging them to, no, come on, swing at it, come on, work harder, quicker, just kind of encouraging them. 
a lot of people are really kind of it's it's tough to separate what I'm going to do on a golf course from what you're doing on a range. So a lot of people get a little bit maybe careful or worried a little bit too much about accuracy when they're instead of going right, I'm doing speed work now. These twenty balls, let's just push it and see what we can get. Like I'm doing a bit of swing speed training myself, the super speed golf sticks, and what I found is mobility is actually almost um as good a session to do more over than the the swing speed, the super speed sticks. Now there's a, there's a small increase there's a gradual increase in like my baseline speed because of them but my general mobility like that is i have realized is even more key so do you see that as well or are you able to just jump into that net you have in the backyard and go hell for leather well i'd always start off i have a i do a good bit of stretching now before i go out and hit balls you don't want to go out there and just start jumping at it you'll pull something or tweak something and I mean, you always start off with, you know, a few wedges, a few irons, stuff, kind of get everything loosened up and in rhythm. But I 100% agree if mobility is as important, definitely, as, as the strength aspect. Um, you do, I mean, you have to be careful that you don't, you know, overturn or, you know, start doing odd things in your golf swing. But all else being equal, if you can make a bigger turn, you should be able to get a little bit more speed. Before this, right, so let's get out of the way. Like, few golfers break 70, let alone break 60. So can you explain that one, Boris? It's quite simple. You just hit, you know, every shot where you aim and hold every putt you look at. That, it's, it's not, that's not that complicated. Yeah. Sure everybody's done on the PlayStation at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you were, it was the Abs Tour. Was it September last year? Servino Open Italy? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, started in September last year, up in the mountains. So altitude helped, which was helped the distance. But like, it was the same playing field for everyone. And um, you weren't you weren't mm-hmm. playing two and a half thousand feet or meters higher than everybody else. But like, mm-hmm. was there a stage? What was like your mentality? I suppose after the front nine, when things were going really well, um, and you thought there was a score there, or did you? What, what was going through your brain, um, as the round progressed? I think we'll start off with the warm-up because uh, you can ask a couple of the lads who are beside me on the range. It was up there one of the worst warm-ups I did all year. Um, it was quite cold and I was quite cold, so I was kind of struggling to just get myself warm. So there was a few funny shots. Yeah, well, you're a cold um, person anyway. Like We played in Carton House and like, I was, <laughs> if I was in, uh, in March, just before, like the day before, pretty much the day before lockdown. And, like, if there was another layer of clothes I could have gone down without embarrassing everybody around me, I would have. And you were, like, still, like, layered up. So I think you're a cold person anyway. Um, would you say that? Or was it just... I've gotten a bit too used to being in the sun, probably. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> you're from near Dublin. You'd be, bit, you'd be a bit softer compared to, like, my, my west of Ireland, like, born in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> No, I've I've never I've never liked cold weather, but you know I'll I'll put up with it. But give me sunshine any day. <laughs> so the warm up wasn't going too great. Don't tell me there was, was a puzzle rocket in there, was there? No, it was it was more it was more hitting the big ball before the little ball going on than uh, anything quite like that. But it, it got better towards the end, and there's a, it's about a I don't know five minute shuttle as a van brings it down to the. 10T where I started and it's uh, about two, 230, 240 yard par tree up a cliff. Um, 
the altitude obviously makes that play quite a lot shorter, but with the cold temperature, it wasn't playing just as short as the practice days. And hit on the green, made a 30-footer, went, yeah, there's a good start to the day, and just kind of continued from there. I've had, like, I, one one kind of round in my life that was kind of, that felt easy. I was level par after 50 goals. It just felt easy. So as you progressed through the round, was there, like, was it easy for you, or did you feel you didn't have to think about things, or what was going on? Um, it was it was just very enjoyable. It was it was quite funny. I was playing with um, playing with an Italian guy and a French guy, uh, two guys, uh, two friendly guys, and they'd played with the guy who'd won the year before. And as we were going along, they just kept telling me that the that the guy they played with he he shot sixty in the opening round the year before. And that this guy just held every putt he looked at. And they just kept telling me how good this guy was at putting. And anyway, as we were going along, they were telling me these different stories. And he made this putt and that putt. And as they were telling me, I was knocking in 20-footer here, 10-footer there, 30-footer here. Just kind of rolling in the putts. And then just all of a sudden, I was 8 under through 10. It was kind of, yeah, this is pretty good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, as you do, you just just you know, everyday kind of experience. <laughs> and just added a few more and it was I think about through twelve or thirty and I kinda went You know what, if I just par in, that's that's fifty nine, that's pretty cool. And I'm pretty sure then I hit it straight over the flag on my fifteenth and knocked in another thirty footer and went, Huh, that's fifty eight now. <laughs> and I made another one and I was like oh that's 57 <laughs> and just just I actually ended up lipping out in the last for 56 but you know 50, 57 will do would you say in general you're comfortable being under par because that's something I suppose I've spoken to your professors about in top amateurs and one of the things they kind of have to get over at some point to kind of progress to the next level is just be comfortable right at 3 or 4 under par and then pushing to get those extra birdies to really make a difference. Would you say you're you're at that level? That you're like you're comfortable, like you shot fifty seven, you know what I mean? <laughs> eleven under par, so you must be comfortable. Um, well yeah, I shot eleven under in my next tournament then again, and then I shot eleven under earlier in the year in Portugal, so I've done that three times now. So I've got I've got that kind of out of the way. twelve is the next goal. Another thing I'd like to explain uh, for everyone listening is the cap. So people who might have heard of David Carey mm-hmm. is, um, I think you started the trend before Mr. DeChambeau, uh, is wearing that Congal style, kind of more traditional Ben Hogan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Is, is there a reason behind that? Or is it, is it, is it a nostalgic piece of uh, golfing accessory that you have? Or is there a story behind it? Um, well, you've actually got it there in one. It's uh, because of Ben Hogan. Um. I rebuilt my swing a couple of years ago entirely based off uh, the modern fundamentals of golf, uh, his his book, and I have his other one, and just uh, I've read nearly everything I can get my hands on about his life story. It's If anyone hasn't uh, read about him or anything like that, I fully recommend that you go do it now. Uh, maybe even pause this podcast and go find something. He's far more interesting than I am. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's all because of him. And then uh, just to try to 
carry forward maybe the the history of the game and maybe the where it all came from try and keep a little bit of the history going with me at all times so I wear the white cap particular aspect about Ben Hogan the kind of draw you drew you to him in the first place or like his story just the hard work that he put in he wasn't the most natural he wasn't the best at the youngest age I mean he tried to tour failed he tried to tour again failed again but it just the, the perseverance and to keep working at it and the grind and to just keep going and to then get there and then I mean Anyone who doesn't know the story, he then uh, had a head-on collision with a Greyhound bus traveling to an event. Uh, he ended up in hospital, had a blood clot, nearly died, and then came back. Uh, and that won more majors. He won the three majors he played in in 1953. I mean, just the whole story to me is just fascinating and just inspirational. Are you cut from the same cloth, do you think? I'd like to think so, <laughs> but uh, no. But just like I mean, in, in terms, like we, we spent an afternoon golfing now. So like the way he came across to me was um, of that ilk, you know, that there's no real point in doing it if it's not done right. Yeah, I, I've I've always been, I've always believed if you're going to do something or try something, you do it to the best of your ability and give it your full attention. So yes, I'd agree with that. For you then. What would your earliest golfing memory be? Oh, um, I remember playing uh, in the the pitch and puck course in Elm Green, which is just up the up the street from where I live. Uh, and I remember, I don't know what age I was. I might have been three, four, somewhere in that area. But I remember hitting tree woods onto the greens. No, it's good. It's good fun in Elm Green. There they have. Um, have an 18 hole course and driving range and pitch and putt and stuff. That was that was where I first started the game. So what what was the transition for you then growing up? Did, was it your dad introduced you to the game? Is it, are you from a golfing family? Yeah, my my dad and my uncle both play. So my dad would have introduced me. Um, I know he said there used to be kind of a little bunker beside the chipping green, so he'd be uh he'd be there chipping away and I'd be there playing in the sand. I kind of progressed from there. <laughs> well, that's exactly what myself and my boy do. You know? He plays in the bunkers and I hit chip shots and then I might go to the other side and he might play in the other bunker. So, yeah, he'd be the only son who plays in the bunkers, I would say. Yeah, and then gradually progress. You get a club and then you hit a ball and then you think, that's fun, let's try that again. As you kind of got older and got into your teens, was there other sports competing with golf or was golf always the, the be all and end all for you? Um, I played played a lot of soccer up until I was about 12 or 13. Actually, probably for probably until I was maybe 11 or 12. It was probably my main sport. Okay, okay. And that, would that have been for Captain Up Rangers or someone? Or? Um, I, I, played, I actually played mostly for Shelburne back before. Back back when they were one of the top teams in the country. When did golf kind of take over then? Um, it was somewhere in that region of kind of 11, 12, 13. Um, when I was playing football, I was always playing the left wing, and I think one day eventually I was running up and down that sideline, and I got sick of just running up and down that sideline. <laughs> and I thought, uh, you know, the thing about football is you can have a good game and stuff, and the team will lose and that kind of thing. And 
big draw for of golf for me was the fact that how I play on a given day that that determines the result. So if you play well, you're going to do well. If you don't, it's just it's all on you. I mean, there's great aspects to team sports as well, but you know that's that's the great thing about having so many options. It's great as a kid to get to play different sports and try different things and just figure out what what you like best. So you turned pro. Pretty much found a boys' golf in 2015. Is that right? Age 18 years of age, freshly faced. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of skipped the whole men's amateur circuit, really. Yeah. You skipped the whole men's thing, yeah. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> there a compelling event, or a moment, or or, or a realization that led to turning pro. Um. Well, off the back of playing. Uh, European boys that gave me an exemption through the first stage of Alps Tour School. So I went there. Alps Tour School was played in La Cala, uh, then near Malaga. It's played in December. So at the time I went with, I had no real thoughts that oh I'm going to turn pro now. It was just I'll go down for experience. If I get a card, great. I can play a few events, get a bit of experience. That was that was kind of the the main way of going about it um actually the opening round was my first ever hole in one i'd started off with a double on the first and then bogey the second and had my first hole in one on the third so that, that was a bit of an up and down day but <laughs> uh from from there i got a card went out to went out to egypt for the first two events in february again as an amateur still wasn't really thinking about turning pro really and then I finished 11th and 6th and thought, ah, this is easy. <laughs> so uh, that led to some discussions with my coach uh, when I came back, my dad, my family, the, you know, uh, everyone who was supporting me. And the general consensus was, if you want to be a pro, go be a pro, go learn that way. So that's what I did. No matter what tour you're on, if you can average in the 69s and preferably on the lower end of the 69s you're going to do pretty well uh but the fine margin i suppose is that last year i averaged i think was it i think it was 70.008 and that wasn't good enough to move up and if i had averaged something like 69 and a half that would have been so the margins are kind of that kind of half a shot here and there all adds up it all adds up so is that why you're kind of for that here and there. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, it'd be great if there was some magic solution or something that somebody could go, oh, do this, that'll take two shots off your game. But when you get down to the to the low end, I mean, any, anyone, even anyone off a single digit handicap will know that, you know, it's, not, it's never as simple as that. It's always a little bit here, a little bit there. And then you know, it takes an awful lot of work and then maybe at the end of the year or after a couple of months you'll start seeing literally half a shot here and there and then it just all adds up and comes together. Need a bit of a rub of the green go your way as well. Um I was just I actually was watching um it was a little thing by Samuel Jackson and he kinda of summed it up as he said in his words, luck was being in the right place but being prepared. And that it makes it's no good being in the right place at the right time if you're not prepared to take it. So preparation's important too. So once we get out of this predicament, or what would be your immediate priorities? Because as everyone can understand, if there is going to be a 2020 
tour is going to be highly condensed. Do you have an idea of what your immediate priorities would be? Well, the, the, the whole isolation period, it's brought about. It's kind of interesting because normally with the way the seasons work, there's never really a huge amount of downtime. You might get December, January time, and then even then you're kind of straight away thinking, I need to have everything ready to go again so that you never have kind of major any time for any kind of major surgery or major changes. So this has really given me a lot of time to like like anyone who's following the Instagram, like I said, to really get at the speed work and done a lot of work on wedge play. I've done, I've done I've been I've been working every day, all day, just on everything, trying to get better. So it, it's given me time to make changes I otherwise wouldn't probably have had time to make so the first step is obviously i haven't been on the golf course in eight weeks to get out and see what's worked what hasn't worked um start building up kind of a, a basis of more on course practice and stuff like that once we have more of a set date for the return to competition i mean could be August, optimistically. Maybe it won't be till September, October time. So once we have more of a, a set date for that, I can start planning more towards being game sharp and you know a lot more, a lot less technical work and a lot more just trying to just get the whole scoring aspect together again. From we when we played in car. We spoke a little bit about your equipment and the support that Ping gives you. Um, can you explain how that relationship started? Yeah, um, yeah. Back before before I turned pro, the I think it was about the September time of twenty fourteen. Uh, I got in touch with Ping and um, went over to the factory there in Gainsborough in the UK, and went through the we went through the bag and. The full fitting, uh, which is great. I love being over there in the factory. You get to meet the guys that build the clubs. Uh, Darren does all my stuff, and and Dave is the other guy there in the kind of third department. It's it's just that personal touch. It, it that just knowing that here's the guy making your clubs. It, it it's kind of a real family atmosphere. Uh, and from there, I just I ended up getting a whole bag of clubs and. I've been playing ping ever since. Uh, they've been great to me. I highly recommend them to anyone out there who's looking for new clubs. Go get fitted. Go get pings. They're one of the most solid kind of companies you can go with. They've been around a long time and they're going to be around for a lot longer. So what do you, like as a touring professional, look for? I'm extremely picky when it comes to clubs and the guys over at ping will know that, that certainly don't make their life very easy but it's again down to those small margins and small percentages about i mean you want a club that performs when you hit it well but it's also you you need to know what happens when it, it isn't going so well uh there's no, it, i mean you want like with a driver you want it to go far obviously but it's no good if as soon as you miss hit it, it just goes off the planet. So you need to have something that, 
ideally only misses on one side of the course. So for any, what, what I mean by that is that you're standing up and you know there's a lake down the left and you know, well, I'm never going to hit it left. I'm only, only going to hit the fairway. I'm going to hit it down the right. So taking out that that one side of the course, just it just allows you to swing with so much more confidence in a tournament, which is where you need things to work. Um, I've had it before where you've got get equipment that looks great on a range and you know you get it on on the launch monitors and all the numbers look great and then you just go out in the course and in the tournament it just just doesn't click so there is a that you, you do all the testing to try get things as perfect and as dialed in as you can and then hopefully you have one or two options and when you get on a golf course you can figure out the one that under the gun when it all matters you can trust and believe in. No, I'm, I'm paying, paying gives you that. Fantastic. Um, we chatted in that day in Carton about, I suppose, our mutual affinity for, for cleaning our clubs and having everything in order. <laughs> yeah. You're even more OCD about it than I am. So, like, so like why is that level of per, per, like perfection important for you? Because, like, I think we spoke about and I was chatting about him to him about it. Like Foxy, Noel Fox. I heard this rumor that he used to leave the sand on benches. But um your thoughts on that word that it that was quite a sacrilegious thing. Um, I actually think I actually think Sevy used to do something similar as well. And I can under, I can understand where they're coming from with trying to get every last bit of spin possible. Um my thoughts on it has always been that there's very few things in golf that we have 100% control over. I mean, we can't control the lie, we can't control the wind, we can't control, well, nearly anything, but we can control having the club in the exact same condition for every shot we hit. So if we make it perfectly clean and there's no little bits of dirt in the grooves or anything, then that's one less variable to have to think about. It's that it's the quest to just keep getting better every day. Find there's always something new to learn with this game. There's always something you go out and maybe not every single day, but a lot of days you you do something or you think of something you think oh, I have to try that, or I wonder what will happen if I set up this way, or that was really good. Why why did that work? And it's just to try figure out. Why did things work? How can I do that again? And how can I make it more repeatable so I can do it day in, day out? How do you address or cope with, with bad shots or maybe more disappointing days in the court? It's probably going to sound a little bit like a cliche, but it's really, you have to try find some way of focusing on, on the process. So whether it be one shot at a time, one week at a time, it's just to keep coming back to what worked, why did that work, what didn't work, why didn't that work, and to just keep kind of going along and trying to just get that little bit better, try find those little things, I mean, if you are if you have a good coach or somebody you can rely on that you can go back to them and go, look, this isn't working or that's not working, we need to try this, we need to try that, it just, it's that whole process, if you get kind of hyper focused on on results that's that's where that that'll lead you down dark routes and you don't want to go down that way <laughs> you seem to be very good at like compartmentalizing things or like 
dealing with situations in isolation, whether that's like technical ability or is that something you've always had that's innate to you or is that something you've like developed over time? Have I always had that? No, definitely not. <laughs> um, we touched on it earlier, but again, for me, um, when I really dove in to to Ben Hogan, that that was a real kind of that was a that was a complete game changer for me. It gave me that kind of big picture of the top of one of the best golfers of all time, and this guy. He failed more than once, but he worked at it, and it just it just kind of gave me that mindset of it's not about how many times you fail or how many time times things don't work, and that's not just about golf. That's about anything and everything you're trying. It just get back at get back out there, get back practicing and working and figuring out how do I get better at this, and from that it's kind of built up. I suppose you'd call them a mindset or I don't know, just a way of going about things that just, that's my, I suppose the the drive behind everything is just one day at a time, try to get better. When we look back maybe at the last five years on tour and what was the hardest shot you've ever had hit under pressure and why? The hardest shot I've ever had to hit under pressure. That's it. Um, I suppose there's there's two different types of pressure when it comes to tournament golf. There's the pressure of trying to win a tournament or the pressure of trying to make a cut. Um, I suppose dealing with when you're just outside a cup mark, that's probably in some ways a harder pressure to deal with because if you've if you're if you're outside the cut, you're probably struggling a little bit with your game anyways. Um, I mean the pressure of trying to win a tournament, I. I mean, having been there and done that last year a couple of times, I I don't find that as bad because you know you're playing well. So even if you have a tough shot, you're kind of, you'll back yourself on the basis of, I'm playing well this week, I can do this. It's when you it's when things aren't going well to be able to maybe pull a shot off then, that's when that's when it's a bit tougher. Um if we go back to that very first Alps Q school. I was, I think, I think I was 30 and a 40 and over through 23 holes of that tournament, something like that. And I made the cut on the number on five over, I think it was. And I birdied, birdied my last two holes. I made two putts from about 10 feet to make the cut on the number. So that would have been, in, to my mind anyway, a lot more nerve wracking, a lot more of a pressure filled situation. Because you know, if I don't, if I don't play well now, that's it. That's the end of this tournament. I'm missing the card. I'm going home. So, from traveling around the Alps tours and the Challenge tours, and maybe a bit with the GOI, is there any particular like memorable story or or tour tale for us? Oh, best story. Boys golf, Cormac Sharp and Robert Dawson. Give us the dirt. Um, they were actually both a bit, little bit older than me. Uh, Rob was the year, Rob was the year above me. Um, but we were both on the the boys home internationals team when we when we won in Forest Pines. Um, Paul McBride was on that team as well. Ronan Mullerney, 
Uh, pretty sure James Subaru was there. There was, there was a, quite a lot of us have turned pro off that team. Um, it was a very strong team. Um, Burst turret tail, though, that's... That's a good question. And we certainly had a few good few good moments trying to get through airports and just traveling and Airbnbs and, you know, stuff like that is can always be end up in a bit of a nightmare at times. Um well, probably the I suppose if you most stressful one we had last year was um we were coming back and Personally, it was okay for me. I, I didn't have anything going on, but the lads were playing first stage open qualifying. And when we got to the airport, they told us the flight was, the plane plane had been changed to a smaller plane, so the flight was overbooked and there was no space for us on the flight. And the guys were kind of saying, well, I have a tea time at nine o'clock tomorrow. Uh, this doesn't really work. They can, we can't just fly back tomorrow morning or anything like that. So that led to quite a big argument with the, with the people in the airport and funny enough by the end of that they'd found two seats on that plane yeah it's amazing it's amazing how these seats just appear from nowhere but i think they stuck a few on the back and we, we got on anyway um as far as funny stories i mean there's, there's been some excellent ones with um out in egypt uh actually kevin leblanc was playing with with a guy anyway and just see, we've all been there. He's having a bit of a bad day. Uh, had a struggling with his putter a bit. Missed a couple of putts. Uh, missed the putt. Flicked his ball up. Put it in his pocket. Threw his putter in the lake. Uh, looked at the two lads and kind of realised, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. Put his ball back down and marked it. Said nothing. <laughs> uh then proceeded to have to walk about 100 yards back to where his bag was to get a wedge to walk back up and finish the hole with a penalty for having picked up his ball. He then had to go back out to try to get his putter out of the lake, and I'm 99% sure that he couldn't find it. <laughs> I can't say I've ever got to that stage on the course, but I'm, I certainly had times where I can understand people doing just about anything. So we're firing with a quick fire q and um... So, David Carey, what would your walk-on song be? Oh, um, definitely be something by Dead Mouse. He'd be, he'd be my favourite artist now. Um, raise Your Weapon, maybe? Nice. Would you be a gym or a pizza type of guy? Pizza. Hat, visor, or bucket hat? Uh, hat. Well, it's a Ben Hogan cap. That's, it's, it's a new, it's a new top, uh, criteria I need to add to that question now. <laughs> Happy Gilmore or Tin Cup? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, just Happy Gilmore. Guinness or Heineken? Uh, don't drink. Iced tea. I use, I loved iced tea when I lived in Italy. Fantastic peach. Can't get better than that. Are you are you a fan of the iced tea? Um, yeah, lemon iced tea. Lemon iced tea, I can definitely go for. Coca Cola is even better. And Al Palmer, that's not alcoholic, isn't it? The Al Palmer that they have at the Bay Hill. That's like lemonade and... Yeah, that's just... That's, that's, that's lem- I think it's half lemonade, half tea. I've never had one. Better try it. Um, Le Hinch or Paul Marnock? Uh, haven't played Le Hinch, so I'll have to say Paul Marnock. Well, we'll fix that. Walk or cart? Oh, walk. Walk all day. Walk with a pencil bag if I know you. Uh, win the Masters or win the Open? That's a tough one. Uh, probably Masters. 
Tradition? Is that why? Um, if I was going on tradition, I'd probably have to say the Open. It's it's the oldest and probably the most prestigious. There's just something really cool about going back to the same course every year. No, absolutely. Have you read Have you read the book Making of the Masters? I haven't. No. I, um... That's one now. That's one now for you. There you go. You can take that. That's one for you to buy from Jeff Bezos. Would you rather drive it 300 yards every time or never miss a 10-foot putt? Um, I think I'll take the 10-foot one bit, 10-foot uh, putt bit. The 300 yards is not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> For the likes of you, anyway. Uh, Instagram or Twitter? Uh, Twitter. Play or practice? Uh, both, please. <laughs> <laughs> Good man yourself. Thank you so much for your time, David. Great insight into what you're all about. Um, and we look forward, we'll, we'll reconvene maybe in Carton uh, post-lockdown and get some more golf in together. Sounds good. Thank you for sticking with that episode. I understand that my microphone wasn't exactly the best the whole way through. Let's just say that microphone is now firmly in the bin. Um, but yeah, if you did enjoy the chat from David's side, uh, he came through really well. Uh, please leave a review wherever you do get your podcasts. Head over to paddygolf.com. There is some news heading out there soon on a giveaway and also an ask uh, to complete some questions for that giveaway. Uh, so check it out there during the timesheet. And yeah, until we tee up again soon, I'm Paddy.